Come on in, have a seat, and we are going to get into Genesis chapters 46 and 7. We're continuing to follow the adventures of Joseph as the second most powerful man in the world and, uh, and how he has now revealed himself to his brothers. He has sent them back to the land of Canaan to pick up their dad and all their families. And, uh, and then the instruction is to come back into the land of Egypt where they can have refuge from the unbelievably bad famine that has hit that whole area of the world. And I, and I continue to play in my mind what it must have been like when the brothers come back to the land of Canaan to tell their father that Joseph is actually this powerful man that they've been dealing with and he's inviting them all to come back. And we read that, that when Joseph uh, sent them back, he gave them these, they're described in the scripture as carts that would be then used to bring back the family and their goods and everything. But you could imagine that these would be pretty elaborate, pretty lush. And so, I mean, when you consider the mode of travel of that day, this would be the equivalent of riding first class. And, uh, and so that would be the first indication that Jacob would have of the kind of status that his long-lost son, Joseph, had. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 46, and we read, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So here we have now an account of the, um, the trip that they're about to make to Egypt. And um, if you looked at a map of Israel, as they are coming south, they come to the city or the place known as Beersheba. And uh, Beersheba, if you looked at a map and you looked at wh where the Gaza, Gaza is right now and you looked at the most southern part of Gaza and you went due east, uh, right smack in the middle of Israel at that point, kind of equidistant from Gaza and Masada, actually, you see this, this area known as uh, Beersheba. And Beersheba has a lot of significance in, in the history of, of Jacob's family because it's there in that spot that uh, his grandfather, Abraham, had, um, had struck a, an agreement with Abimelech from the Philistines concerning a well. And that's when they called the place Beersheba, which means the well of oaths or the well of seven. And, uh, and this was a place where God had spoken to Abraham there in that place. 
uh, he, Abraham had lived there for a time. And the same is true of Isaac, that Isaac lived there for a time as well. Um, and so this is a place that has been special between the family, the, the lineage of Abraham and God. Now, for, for many years, um, Isaac received a, a very special promise from God uh, while he was there. And it was probably in that very place where we read that Israel offered sacrifices to the Lord as he's making his way towards Egypt. And I might add that, um, you know, here is Abraham, or I'm sorry, here is Jacob, and he's making a pretty big step out in faith. He, he's going to a place that, frankly, um, the Lord had told his father not to go. He's going to a place where he is not going to be his own man. He's going to be under the authority of another. And so he's making a, a move of faith. And before he does that, he makes a special uh, effort to commune with the Lord, to sit before the Lord and to allow God to, first of all, to hear his praises, to hear his petitions, but more importantly, to hear from God, to get a peace about what is about to happen. Um, very much Jesus Christ himself did this very thing because we know that before he went to the cross, he had that time in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays this beautiful prayer that you find in John chapter 17, where first he prays to the Lord concerning what he's about to do, what God has asked him to do. And then he turns his attention to the men who have been around him that God has raised up to hear from him the truth and then to be the ones that will ultimately disseminate that truth to the rest of the world. And then he takes it to yet another layer and he prays for Christians of all time, including you and me. And what you're finding is Jesus about to do the most impactful thing that a human being has ever done for the sake of humanity, that is to pay the penalty for our sins. But he would not even consider going through with that until he had that moment to sit with the Lord. And I see very much that this is, this is what... Um, what Jacob is doing here. And then we see there in verse two that much to uh, the response, God's response to the deference and the devotion that, that Jacob showed to God, God reveals himself to Israel or Jacob in visions of the night, calling him out by name. Now it's interesting because in the dispensation in which Jacob lived, uh, he did not have the full counsel of God. He did not have the spirit of God living in him. And it's in, these, in that period of, of the history of God relating to human beings that typically when God wanted to move his servants in a particular way, this would be very often the way that God would appear to them. I mean, we know that God appeared to Abraham in, in such a way. He appeared to Isaac in such a way. And now he is, he is appearing to Israel or Jacob in this way. And he's telling him in verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. And I, I count it as very significant that he identifies himself first before giving any message. And, and this is simply uh, acknowledging a truth that we all as Christians should be well aware of. You can have spiritual experiences that have nothing to do with the true and living God. And this is something that, that uh, again, people who are not believers might think is crazy talk or they might 
embrace it. There's an awful lot of people I've met, and I bet you have too, who would describe themselves as very spiritual. And they're very excited when they have spiritual experiences. And the temptation is to say, well, you haven't really had a spiritual experience because you don't know the true and the living God. Nope, it's the opposite. They most definitely probably had spiritual experiences that had nothing to do with God and everything to do with the enemy. And I think that being that we are in the last days, Scripture tells us that in the last days, these kinds of occurrences will become more prevalent, more impactful. And uh, in fact, I think it was last week on Jan Markell's show, she had on uh, a guest and they were talking very specifically about this phenomenon of you know, the wrong kinds of spirits harassing people, even harassing believers. Believers cannot be possessed by evil spirits, but they can be harassed by evil spirits. And so God is very careful to first say, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but that tells me very specifically that God, God knows the heart of Jacob. And therefore, he knows that Jacob does indeed have fear about that. His grandfather may have told him the stories of when he went down there and uh, it didn't go well. You know, he was passing off his wife as his sister because he was out of fear. He, he, it was a moment when Abraham's faith was weak. Um, you know, the, the, the history of Abraham's line in Egypt had been very problematic up to that point. And of course, Egypt was a very, very powerful nation or empire at that time. And so to think you're going to go down there, waltz in there, you don't know what to expect. But you do know this, that uh, you, you basically don't have any rights. You're coming under the, the power of this great, awesome Pharaoh. And so God is telling him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. And then he says, Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Basically, I believe that means that ultimately his son Joseph will have a hand in burying him when his days are done. Now, it's interesting that God tells him something about, I'm going to make you a great nation there. And then I will also bring you up again. That is to bring you back into the land. Well, lo and behold, and, and maybe Jacob knew this, maybe he didn't. Uh, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But lo and behold, God actually made that promise to his grandfather, Abraham. If you go back in Genesis to Genesis 15, verse 13, God says this to Abraham. In fact, it was even before he was Abraham. He was still Abram. And we read in verses 13 and 14, he says, then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants, of course, of which Jacob and his sons are, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now to hear that uh, <coughs> well before this ever happens, I'm sure Abraham's scratching his head. What in the world is God telling me here? We're going to be there 400 years and we're going to be afflicted there and then somehow we're going to leave with a lot of loot? How is that going to happen? Well, we know that 
that is exactly what will happen. But what I'm saying is that the Lord had already put into the, the thinking, the knowledge of Abraham, and then we would presume Isaac, and then, of course, Jacob, that this, this whole thing was predicted. This whole thing was prophetically identified. And now God is saying, okay, Jacob, this is that promise come to pass. And, um, and so we read that Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones, their wives, and carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry this must have been quite an amazing procession of, of people and goods and animals because remember their livestock, verse 6, so they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, between verses 8 and 27... Uh, we get a, a roster of the main individuals that are part of this company. And whenever you see this kind of detail provided in Scripture, your temptation might be to say, okay, God, you don't, you don't need to name all these people. Just tell us a lot of them went. That will be good. That will be good enough. But we have to understand that the Bible is a lot of things. It is a prophetic book. It is a book of, of principle and morality. It is a book of revealing the Savior. But it is also a history book. And good history always has data points and names names and gives the reader a way to verify the veracity of the document. And the Bible never misses the chance to validate itself by doing so. So we read there in verse 8, now there, these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shuul, the sons of a Canaan, the son of a Canaanite woman, interesting little aside there, that uh, Simeon kind of stepped out of the, uh, uh, the plan or God's order to marry, uh, to have a child with a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah. Now, those first three sons we know were from his actual wife. Ur died in Ur, died in Ur. Um, Onan likewise died for not having fulfilled the leveret responsibility that he had. Shelah was the youngest of those three sons whom Judah had promised to his daughter-in-law Tamar and then never fulfilled the promise. Then, of course, we've already read that Tamar tricked Judah into thinking she was a, a harlot. Uh, Judah had relations with her. She ultimately became pregnant. She gives birth to Perez and Zerah. Uh, and these two sons are now, they were twin boys that came through Tamar. And then the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Now let me stop here to just identify up till this point in history, the highway of the seed. And by the highway of the seed, I mean the lineage that ultimately leads to Messiah, Jesus Christ. Starts with Abraham, 
Abraham is the one that is called out of all the people on the face of the earth of the time to be the progenitor of God's people Israel. And it's from God's people Israel that Messiah will ultimately be raised up. So we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Then the son of Jacob that ultimately is in the line of Messiah is Judah. And the son of Judah that ultimately is in the line of Messiah is Perez. And the son of Perez that's in the line of Messiah is Hezron. And so that's as far as we've gotten in terms of the lineage of Jesus. And you can find all this in the, um, in the genealogy that you find in the book of Luke. And uh, in Luke chapter 3. And again, the Bible is very, very diligent in providing lineage, especially when it relates to Jesus. Because Jesus Christ as Messiah has been verified by the record that the people of Israel held in their hand, and yet he still was rejected by them. But, but it's not because God didn't provide the information, because he did. Then we see there the sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. The sons of Leah, these were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. So what, what the writer is doing here is he is he's identifying the descendants on the basis of the four women that bore children to Jacob. And we know the first wife, if, if you know, we use the term, his first wife that provided all those sons was Leah. Um, and then we, we carry on. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Urilai. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Ishu, Ishu, Biria, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Biria were Eber and Mal, 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 Malkiel, excuse me. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave Leah his daughter. So remember, Zilpah was the handmaid of Leah, and ultimately she was offered to uh, Jacob to have children. And she bore Jacob, uh, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, and they will become very significant in a little bit here because they ultimately will more or less be used to double up the inheritance of Joseph. We're going to see that, that Jacob takes these two uh, grandsons and brings them up to the status of sons, which has the effect of doubling Joseph's inheritance among all the other brothers. Uh, so Manasseh and Ephraim, who, uh, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. <laughs> Sounds like a, a Hans Christian Andersen uh, story. These were the sons of Rachel, who, was, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan were Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Je Jezer, and Shilam. And these were the sons of Bilhah, 
whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Jake, uh, Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were 70. Now, just a little uh, <laughs> Bible nerd nugget. Um, if you went to Acts chapter 7, verse 14, you'd read this. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And so this is one of those places where uh, skeptics of the Bible love to point to the inconsistency between the account that Stephen gives in his testimony just before being stoned and, uh, and what we read here in Genesis. Uh, but... Uh, Scholars have determined that Stephen quoted from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which uses that number 75. And the number that is in the Septuagint was arrived in a different way, uh, adding five more sons or grandsons of Joseph that were born in Egypt. The Septuagint is, is the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And a lot of the Jewish people uh, in the sort of Greek world use that Bible. So it's one of those things where if you look more deeply, you understand uh, why it's, it's out of phase there. And so we pick it up in, uh, in verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And this would be in the eastern Nile Delta. So if you looked at the Nile River and you look kind of downriver... Um, the land of Goshen was there. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Now this is in stark contrast to what, Joseph, or what Jacob said at the end of the chapter where uh, where the, the other sons had to take Benjamin back to Egypt. And he said, everything is against me. Just let me die. And now uh, quite different sen sensibility on Jacob's part in that he has seen his son, Joseph, who he loved with all his heart. He knows that he's alive. And, and he said, I, I, I can finally go to my grave in peace. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, this is an interesting little uh, instruction that Joseph is giving his father and his brothers. He's saying, look, when Pharaoh comes, be sure to tell him you're shepherds because Egyptians find shepherds repulsive. You'd say, what's the point of that? And here's where you have to see the beauty of God's design in taking uh, this family to Egypt. 
I mean, God could have engineered another place to take refuge from the famine. He could have even used Canaan, the land of Canaan, to be that refuge. But we know from the very beginning when they were called to Canaan that God continually, repeatedly, for hundreds, a thousand years, warned them, do not fraternize, do not intermarry with, do not get buddy-buddy with the Canaanite peoples because they're desperately wicked. And so God is using this moment of famine to move this family that's going to be the nucleus of this nation that ultimately will be so significant in terms of the face of the earth and all of humanity, takes them out of the land of Canaan, which is defiled, brings them to another nation, which let's be honest, honest the Egyptians were, were pagans too, um, and, and they had a lot of practices that would rival the Canaanites for wickedness, except for this one factor. The Egyptians found shepherds abominable. And yet, Pharaoh had such a high regard for Joseph that he is going to make a provision for Joseph's family to be in the most choice land in all of Egypt, along the Nile River. Nile River Delta, in that time, even now, very fertile, very awesome for those that have flocks of, and herds of animals. But he's going to put them there more or less in isolation. I've heard this, this bringing the Jewish people to the Nile River Delta as being like a womb to birth the nation. Because, you know, mother's womb is one of the, the most pristine environments to incubate life, let's face it. it, it it's, it's warm, it's it's. It's got plenty of fluid. It's got plenty of nutrients. It's got protection of all kinds under you know, normal circumstances. And this area that God is bringing these people to is ultimately going to be that for the birth, for the development of this nation. And it's going to be a place where they will not be tempted to intermarry with. They will not be embraced into the mainstream of Egyptian society Ultimately, when Joseph's days pass, they're going to be oppressed, but they're not going to be tainted in the sense of more or less becoming more Egyptian than God's people. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and all their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. We don't know which, which of the men, which brothers he took, but he took a representative group from, from his extended family and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And true to the, to the uh, preparation they had, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture in their flo for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Get that, the best of the land. This would be a clear indication of the kind of esteem that Joseph is held in, in the eyes of Pharaoh. Um, and the land, 
land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So not only do they get the best of the land, but they, they now have uh, the opportunity to also tend the flocks of Pharaoh. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. Now get this, because this is a mind-blowing statement that's very easy to just miss. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Stopping right there. When blessings are conferred, it always goes from the greater to the lesser. Greater to the lesser. Remember when Abraham met up with Melchizedek? He tithed to Melchizedek because it was evident to Abraham that the greater among them was Melchizedek. I mean, could you imagine, um, I don't know, a Catholic priest going before the Pope and saying, Pope, I give you a blessing. I mean, it would just be, it would just break the protocol. It's like, wait a minute, son, you know? Um, and, and yet we read here that Jacob blesses Pharaoh and Pharaoh receives it. Jake, it's verse seven, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days and the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So we read again. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now, what is so remarkable about that statement is that Pharaoh in Egypt was considered a god. It was considered a, an extension of the sun god, Ra. And so to imagine a situation where some old man who's not even Egyptian, who's from the land of Canaan, would come in and, and author a blessing over Pharaoh was astounding. And so we can only surmise why it tracked that way. I think that a safe assumption could, could be that it has something to do, again, with the esteem that the Egyptians had for Joseph. Joseph was able, for example, to interpret or, or to identify the dream that Pharaoh had and then to give the meaning of it, then to act on the prophecy that he gave and it comes out spot on correct. He was a, he was a superb manager, both in Potiphar's house and now as the COO, if you will, the chief operating officer of, of Egypt and they are prospering under his hand. And, and so I could only imagine that Pharaoh says, well, if Joseph is that, he must have got that from somewhere. Somehow the God of Jacob or the God of gods has their hand on this young man and he came from this old man. And so somehow he puts all that together to say, I'm not exactly sure who Jacob is, but I'll take a blessing from him. You know, if he could author a son like this, uh, I'm all in. Now, the interesting thing, when Pharaoh says, how old are you? The manner in which Joseph, uh, Jacob responds to that is he speaks of the days of his pilgrimage. Hmm. 
the days of his pilgrimage. We know he can't be, he can't be um, meaning the time between when he left Canaan to Egypt, you know, pilgrimage to Egypt, because it's not 130 years. No, what he means, what he's referring to, is the way in which he sees his life on earth. By this time, Jacob has had enough encounters with God to know that God's plan for his life vastly exceeds his experience on earth. He understands that what God is doing in his life on earth is preparing him for what comes after that. And so he clearly sees his time on earth in much the same way that the New Testament tells you and I to see our time on earth. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, says Peter, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable, honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is saying, look, um, don't, don't plug yourself into the lusts of the world, uh, the pride of life, uh, the things that people get wrapped up in because they see their experience here on earth as really all there is. Saying, no, you're living for something much bigger. You're living for the Lord. Conduct yourself during your pilgrimage in a way so that people will see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Same thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 16. So Jacob, in the time that he has been on the earth and in the multiple instances, including the one we saw in Beersheba in the last chapter, he's, he's got a sense of eternity now. He, he understands why he's here. And he also understands the reasons why he's, you know, what's coming next. And this is precisely what, um, what the Lord is telling us too. It's hard because, again, we live in a time that's not as nasty, brutish, and short as the days in which these people live. We've got great medical care. Like I said, I think on Sunday, we are way over-entertained. Uh, we've got options for comforts in this life, uh, for ways to entertain ourselves, uh, for ways to prolong life, and you could get very attached to everything that's here. I mean, we live in, the, in, in, in a nation and in a time where we are, if you took the entirety of hu the human race, we live at the apex of prosperity and wealth. And, and I'm not just talking about the, you know, Jeff Bezos's of the world. Everybody in this room is probably in the top one or two percent of the population of the world now, let alone history, when it comes to your ability to get three square meals a day that are nutritious, a place where you have clean water, where you have a roof over your head and heat, um, right? And so we could get very attached to this and not live our lives in a way that really is preparing the way for what's to come, not only in our lives, but on the earth as well. Another thing that's curious about the way in which Jacob answers the question of Pharaoh, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. Now, I don't take that as a cynical statement by Jacob. I think what he is recognizing is the general character of life lived in the flesh, 
Uh, the length of life on earth doesn't compare to life in eternity. Uh, the fact that we live in a world that in every aspect of what we know in the world is, is tainted by sin. I personally, people say, oh, what do you think heaven's like? And what will, be, what will blow our minds most? And, and people want to think about streets of gold and, and all the things that you know, are described in scripture concerning the physical attributes of the life to come. I personally... It's just a personal view. My personal view is the thing that we will notice immediately and it'll take our breath away is that we will be living in a world that has no taint or corruption of sin. Our own thoughts will not be tainted by the corruption of sin. The body that we'll occupy We'll, I, right now, I guarantee there's 10 people in this room that have a backache right as they sit here. Some of you maybe have a headache from listening to me. These are all things that come from sin. Uh, the, 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 the effect of sin on the creation. We know that when Adam and Eve fell, the whole creation was corrupted. Paul the Apostle describes the whole creation is groaning for the day when we can be taken out from under the effects and the weight of sin. And I personally believe that'll be the most profound thing that you will experience immediately. It'll be like going from a smoke-filled, cigar-smoke-filled room to all of a sudden you're standing on a vista in the Rocky Mountains and you're breathing perfectly clear air. And it's like, wow, that just affects every aspect of what I'm seeing, feeling, and hearing, and I love it. And, and so I think he's seeing that. I mean, the writer Solomon in writing Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is what he said. He said, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What he's simply saying is, if you really take stock of what life on this earth is like, I don't care how good you have it, it's all vanity. It's all going to pass away. You're not going to take any of it with you. And frankly, when you get to the other side, you won't want any of it with you. And so I think this is what Jacob, Jacob now is a wise old man. You know, I aspire to be wise and old someday. Well, I've got half of it right. Um, but he, this is the way he's responding to Pharaoh. And so um, we see here in verse 11, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Now we get an account of how Joseph is dealing and ministrating in the midst of the famine, and it's pretty interesting. I wish we had leaders in our country who were as uh, wise as this. Now there was no bread in all the land, for, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So basically, he's making a killing. He's got a, a, a monopoly, um, and he happens to be selling the one thing that everybody needs to live with to live, to, in order to keep living. And so Pharaoh is growing richer by the minute. 
So when the money had failed, in other words, there was no more money to be had. He had it all. <laughs> uh, when the money had failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. In other words, the money has run out. Uh, you know, there's too much uh, month left at the end of the money, so to speak. Then Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from our Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands." Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we will, when we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh, give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Now, up to this point, um, your capitalistic blood is probably boiling because what's happening is all the government, so to speak, is sucking all of the wealth out of the land. Now, the condition that governs this is this famine. And all of this food that was stored by Pharaoh's regime is now being used to feed the people. But they are requiring the people to buy that food. You could argue with that. Um, but the people are... Pharaoh is consolidating power. He is becoming now a complete ruler over every aspect of their lives. This would be... Uh, the cream dream of the totalitarianist is that I control your food, I control your land, I control all the animals. Um, this is what is going down here. We could argue with the morality of it. What ultimately happens, um, we see there, um, then Joseph bought all the land of this verse 20 of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the fam famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So what Joseph has instituted here is a flat tax. Everybody pays 20%. Uh, oh, that we would have such a thing in our country. Um, but here it is, and... Um, and as I said, we, we could argue with the fact that Joseph has set up a regime that basically has drained personal, individual wealth from the citizens of Egypt. Now, I think it's quite clear that for God's purposes and God's purposes alone, this is allowed to happen. This has basically now consolidated all power in the hand of Pharaoh. And that is going to have an effect downstream when ultimately the children of Israel 
wake up and realize 400 years later that they are being oppressed by this absolute power and it's time to leave. So this is a contributing factor to what will ultimately be 400 years hence, reason to get out of Dodge, so to speak. Uh, so they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one fifth Except for, the, uh, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become pharaohs. Now, I'm not going to drill into this, but I just want you to know, classic case of how government uses a, a common peril to remove individual rights. Um, I don't know why I said that or what that might mean, uh, but there it is. Um, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied Exceedingly, Let me point out, by the way, that that 20% flat tax, that surrender your, your property, surrender your cattle, surrender, that didn't apply to the Jewish people. They are separate. They, they are truly set apart by God. It's beautiful plan, God. Thank you very much for that. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So he came in at age 130. He lived 17 years. And then we read, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Uh, in contrast, Abraham, I believe, lived 175. His father, Isaac, lived 180. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I have found favor in your sight, Please put your hand under my thigh. This was a way of making a solemn promise, okay? Remember, Abraham uh, made his, his steward, Eliezer, do the same thing when he had commissioned him, go back to Haran and find a, a wife for my son. Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burial place, in their burial place. This is Machpelah, where he is, uh, where family members are buried there. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So there we are. Next time we're going to see uh, what Jacob provides as blessing and prophecy to his sons, uh, which becomes very profound as time goes on. His last words to his son, uh, sons, and I'm, I'm hoping that we will be able to finish next time. And then the week following next time, when we have finished the book, I want to play a movie that's entitled, Is Genesis History? And this movie basically provides scientific backing for the aspects of creation that are described in the book of Genesis. It's a fascinating film. And I think, um, in fact, uh, Vince, I would ask if you could encourage youth to attend it because uh, I think it really fortifies what we know to be true. And yet these are people who, from scientific perspectives, are saying, yeah, these are the most plausible explanations uh, for what we see in the world. And the book of Genesis has described them to us, which, surprise, surprise, God got that one right too. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, Lord, the encouragement we get when we see just the, the amazing way in which you work in the midst of human history to bring about miraculous 
plans and, and programs and outcomes. And uh, Lord, it's just astounding. And we, we just, Lord, we lift your name on high. We are in awe of you, Lord. And we thank you, God, for having preserved this word for thousands of years that we could read it here in the 21st century. Learn by it, be blessed by it, be encouraged by it. Understand better the God that we serve. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your graciousness, your goodness, your deep and abiding love for us, God. Thank you for meeting us here tonight. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.